Well, good morning. <laughs> Try to get this salt and oil off my hands here as we... <laughs> Uh, it is good to see everybody. Um, I just want to, on behalf of my wife, and, uh, Ashley, and my daughter, Lucy, and this newly forming Sacrament Church in Nashville, Tennessee, I want to say thank you all so much. Um, Sanctuary has supported us and been behind us every step of the way as we've stepped into planting this church. Um, the church, as Blaine had mentioned, has been kind of paying my salary, supporting me, and, um, and then also many of you have individually chosen to support us and support the church. And so I just want to say thank you so much. You've done something um, new since we have left in July, and that each week you kind of recognize a certain thing that the church has been part of, and you applaud that thing and celebrate that thing. So today, we're applauding that you have supported me. So thank you so much for that. Yes, yes. And so to give you a quick update on that, um, things have been going great in Nashville. We love the city there. We are in East Nashville. A lot of people ask us kind of what part of the city. We're in East Nashville, which is just um, on the other side of downtown, on the east side of downtown, and really enjoying it, loving it. We're gathering with our launch team, forming our team, and, and really beginning to worship together in informal kind of Sunday night worship gatherings. We will be launching Sunday morning services this spring, and so we're very excited about that. And we're in an elementary school. We've been given a lot of grace and favor with this elementary school. It's a great building. The principal loves us and has just welcomed us. She's a believer and just is so thankful for us being present there. And um, we've also stepped into some other things. So we are serving um, the local high school that this elementary school feeds. And I have signed up to be the PA announcer, volunteer PA announcer for the high school basketball games. And so some, some things like that. Our, our team is serving concessions and selling tickets and just serving the school and this community. Community. We're going to be painting the locker room floor for them. Um, when I got there, I wanted to meet a couple of the city councilmen, the leaders in that area. And so we took some time to spend with them and have actually built friendships with them. And, and they have uh, called me one week and said, I'd like you to come out and do the invocation prayer for the city council meeting. So I had the opportunity to go and do that. And there happened to be like a fight on the city council floor that night, which was kind of scary, but it, it was a really great opportunity for us. And um, it, it's been a cool opportunity. I had a, another um, pastor in the area who I've become good friends with and he pastors out in the suburbs. He called me last week and he said, hey Preston, I um, just wanna let you know, I'd like you to come to our church on a Sunday morning. And I want to tell all of our community that anybody that wants to leave and join you should do it. And just amazing, really cool things have happened. So thank you all so much for that. Uh, this morning, I wanna jump into, dive in head first into the words of Jesus. Uh, we who are Christians, we proclaim that Jesus is the center of our faith. Everything hinges on the person and the words of Jesus. But I don't know about you, but for me, the words of Jesus are very challenging, sometimes unsettling difficult, sometimes even confusing for us. What do we do here with these words of Jesus? And often what we do, because these words aren't necessarily feel-good words, sometimes what we do is we take certain approaches to try to soften the words of Jesus. Or we say, well, certainly Jesus couldn't have meant that. So maybe if we find another scripture somewhere else in the New Testament, that will kind of soften, you know, read it through that lens, that will kind of soften things. I actually had a Sunday school teacher tell me one time, you know, the words of Jesus are really confusing. So just read Paul. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that's our perspective sometimes is we think that the way that Paul is written and translated sometimes, well, Paul's more like a modern American 
And so he's a little bit more palatable. And so maybe if we read him, then, you know, the words of Jesus, we can kind of put aside, which is actually a pretty gross misunderstanding of Paul as well, but that's a completely different direction. Um, but, but sometimes what we do and the form that this takes is that we'll tend to kind of over-spiritualize the words of Jesus. What I mean by that is that we will take something that seems really physical and specific and kind of turn it into something more floaty and kind of metaphorical. So, for example, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek to your accuser, we think, well, certainly he can't mean really turn the other cheek. Like, I mean, no, it can't mean that. Or when he says, eat my flesh or dr- and drink my blood, he can't be talking about a, a real physical meal here. It's got to be something else other than that. Or when Jesus says that the poor will be blessed, he can't be talking about the same poor that I encounter on a regular basis. It's got to be different than that. Or when he specifically tells the rich young ruler to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. He can't really mean that, right? He, he means like, like sell all of the attachments on your heart or you know, something like that. Um, it's challenging. And today what I want to do, and I think we need to do this more often, is I want to let the words of Jesus um, sit with us, even if it's kind of unsettling, and challenge us a little bit just as they are. Now, this passage may be really familiar to some of you. This is a portion of the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in Luke's gospel. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But flip side here, but woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I want to think of an analogy this morning. Um, It's kind of like if you were um, in elementary school on a playground. Picture yourself on a playground in elementary school. And everybody is playing the game of basketball, okay? They're playing in different forms. Some are kind of more organized. Some are playing kind of one-on-one. Some are shooting, just shooting baskets or playing horse. You know, some are actually just sitting on the ground rolling the ball back and forth, you know, but they have a basketball in their hands. And then a teacher walks onto the playground and she looks over all of these people that are playing the game in a bunch of different ways. And she begins to slowly and methodically choose out five students. So she pulls aside five students. Well, if you know anything about basketball, you know that she, you kind of get a sense of what she's doing, that she's picking a team. She's forming a team together. But let's say that when she gets this team together and she gets all the students together, that she says this, that she says, in order for us to play this game, you're actually gonna need to forget a lot of what you know about basketball. 
You're gonna have to learn a completely different set of rules. It's the same game, but it's gonna be played in a really different way. And then instead of sitting down and for an hour lecturing about the, um, yes, all the differences between this game and and this game, um, she just says, here's a few basic guidelines. Now let's go play. Well, obviously, you know, what Jesus is doing is certainly more serious than a game of basketball, but it's almost like Jesus walks into a playground that is first century Judaism and people are playing a game or living a story in a variety of different ways. And the major question at that time is what does it mean to be the people of God where we live in our place and time? The Roman Empire was uh, the authority and the rulers uh, governing oppressive authority over uh, the Jewish people at that time. And there was a question of, okay, we know we're called to be the people of God, but how do we live that way when we're under the thumb of Rome? So people would respond in all kinds of different ways. There were some people who said, the only way to live as the people of God is we have to overthrow the authorities with violence. So they responded with violence. That was their way of kind of playing that game. There were others that said the opposite. They said, no, you know, Rome's got this really big and expansive empire, so they must be doing something right. So let's just hitch our horse to their wagons and just don't make them upset and just join Rome in kind of what they're doing and live peacefully. And then there was another group of people entirely that said, actually, our our goal should be that we just kind of run away from this place, this society and hope that God kind of blows it up because it's all, it's all evil and it's all bad. And so maybe we can form a utopian society and separate. And then there's lots of other ways that different people were living the story or playing this particular game at this time. And right before this, Jesus had chosen 12 disciples right before this Sermon on the Mount. Out of all the people he encountered, all the people that he saw living the answer to this question in a lot of different ways, he chooses 12 Now, if you're a first century Jewish Jewish person at this time, this would have set off all kinds of alarm bells for you. This number 12 and choosing 12 disciples. Jesus is speaking to a people who descend from 12 tribes of Israel, who are 12 sons of Jacob. And these 12 tribes are sent and are blessed so that they can be a blessing to the world. So to onlookers, it would be really obvious what Jesus is doing here. He was picking out Team Israel. (laughs) He's picking out the 12. 12 sons, 12 tribes. Jesus is picking 12. They will be the core. They will be the nucleus of this new thing that God is about to do. But Jesus does this in a very interesting way. If you were picking a team, the temptation and the tendency, of course, is to pick those that are the best the brightest, the most coordinated, you know, whatever the case is, so that you can play the game the best way. But Jesus does something so interesting. Rather than picking the people that everybody would have thought are the best and the brightest, he actually picks the people who they would have least expected. He picks a ragtag group of men from all different variety of backgrounds. They're not the best and the brightest. And in doing this, Jesus shows the Jewish people at that time and the people at our time that the rules are changing, that he's playing the game in a very different way. And it's gonna look different than anything else that they've experienced. Now, throughout the Old Testament and the history of Israel, there were given to the people of God different spiritual codes 
the book of Deuteronomy, we see these long lists of blessings on one side and then curses for those who didn't obey the law. Blessings for those who did, curses for those who didn't. And this law and these codes are kind of a guideline for how the people of God are supposed to live and even what defines the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, as Jesus begins to call this new Israel around himself, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that he's giving his own version of that list. And he kind of flips the code on its head. The rules of the game have changed. God is doing something new. It, it's the same, the same story. It's the same game. It points back. It's the fulfillment of all of that. It's the fulfillment of the promises that God gave long ago. But the rules are changing. And because of this, it's going to mean good news for a lot of people who haven't had good news for a long time. It's good news for the poor. It's good news for those who are hungry. It's good news for those who are crying, for those who have been excluded and outcast. It doesn't mean that there's something necessarily virtuous about being poor or hungry, but, but that the world is in a state of injustice. Things are not right. And when injustice rules the world, there has to be a change. There has to be a reordering. The world needs to be transformed for God's kingdom to come to life. So I wanna look at some of the details of this code that Jesus puts in place. Uh, they're actually kind of strange and kind of absurd on the outset here. Blessed are the poor would have been a scandal at this time, but it also to the poor in that community would have been a refreshing drink in the desert. Luke's version of this sermon, there's actually two different versions. There's one in Matthew's gospel and there's one in Luke's gospel. Luke's version is just slightly different than Matthew's. Uh, Luke actually says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's maybe one that you've heard more regularly. Luke emphasizes the economic state of those who are blessed. Poor at this time wasn't really much beyond an economic state. It was those who were poor. Um, it also described, because it was kind of the same thing at this time, a state of humility in someone's life, a posture. It was often used to describe the common faithful people at that time. And here, there's a sense that it is those who rely on nothing else other than God. The same is true with those who hungry are hungry, those who weep, those who are hated. Jesus says that their situation will be reversed in the kingdom of God. And then this last statement I think is so profound. It says, blessed are you when people exclude you. This is an idea of people who are marginalized, who have been set aside. For the people of the first century, that was them. That was the Jewish people living in this oppressive Roman empire. They felt that they were a people who had been set aside, who had been marginalized, who lived only in the shadow of this empire. In a world where these common folks were trampled and promised false peace that never proved true, they were called blessed. This was radical. But on the flip side, there's all these blessing. Blessed are, are these people. Blessed are these people. On the flip side, there's also woes. And these woes are really, I think, harder even for us. Uh, woe to you who do this. And it's important for us to remember that these woes are not a statement of condemnation, but they're actually a statement of compassion or sorrow or empathy Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who everything goes well for. Woe to you who laugh. 
This gets really confusing. I know for me, partly because I feel like I'm conditioned to read the scriptures as an individual first. So I read it and I go, how does this affect me individually? So I'm like, I had three meals today. Is it woe to me? Like I, I laughed today. Is, is there something wrong with me? Like, like, what's the problem? Why is there woe to me? But remember, these words are not condemnation first. He's saying he feels sorry for the people that he's describing. Jesus is saying there is something not right with the world. There's something messed up. In fact, not only is it not right, it's actually upside down because it seems like the wicked people are rich and well-fed. It seems like things go well for people who do wicked. That doesn't make sense. People that cling to their own desires, things seem to be going right for them. Jesus says the world needs to be fundamentally changed, needs to be flipped right side up, reoriented. It should be this way. It should be that the people who seek God's will and God's intention, and they seek God's wholeness, that they should see the fulfillment of that wholeness that they should see the result of that. And it should be that when people go in the wrong direction and they seek after brokenness and darkness, that they would actually see the result of their destruction. But that's not always what happens. And that's not always what happened in the first century. In fact, Rome, which is the dominant empire, they dominated with violence. They would conquer a group of people and they would oppress them, but their empire keeps growing. It seems like they're still successful even though they're doing what's wrong. I think we actually see this in our world today some. Have you ever noticed that it seems like some of the worst people in the world have great lives? You notice that? People who pursue only money, that that's their only pursuit, they often get lots of it. People who only pursue fame and, and all they wanna do is get famous and get famous, a lot of times they get there. <laughs> There's an old, old phrase, well, first of all, I'll tell you this story. When, Ashley and I, uh, around Christmas time, we wanted to go see these Christmas lights out at the Grand Ole Opry Hotel in, in Nashville. And it's like the place to go for Christmas lights and it's these great kind of, um, you know, this nativity scene outside and just beautiful Christmas lights. So we headed out there and we decided to go the Saturday night before Christmas, which was a big mistake. Um, so we started driving out there. It's like 20 minutes from our house, but it actually ended up taking over an hour for us to get there. And so, and be thankful for Tulsa traffic because um, Nashville traffic is really bad. But, but while we were there, we got stuck in this kind of traffic jam off the exit and we were there forever and forever. And then anytime you're in a traffic jam, any of you know this, that there's some people that get bright ideas and they, they think there's kind of a way around it. Some of you are those people. Um, <laughs> But, but they, they kind of get on the shoulder and they go really fast on the shoulder or they get in the wrong lane, the lane they're not supposed to and just kind of whip around everybody. And so we had a bunch of those kind of bright idea people that did that. And, and Ashley looked at me and was like, jerks. And then she said, we should try to be jerks sometime. Because <laughs> they seem like they get their way. <laughs> it seems like, but, but that's just a small example of our world is messed up. Sometimes people who pursue bad things or evil, because I think it's evil, objectively evil, <laughs> the people who pursue evil things actually get their way and they achieve success. So there's this old phrase, you are what you worship. The reality is that what we worship, or to use a word with less religious overtones, what we give our life to forms us. And we actually begin to look like and take the shape of that thing that we give our lives to. 
So if all that we worship, if what we worship is money, if that's our final aim and goal, and that's all that our life is about, people will begin to see dollar signs in your eyes. Have you ever met those people that you just know what they're after? <laughs> you kind of see the dollar signs in their eyes. If all we pursue is, uh, well, and you don't even have to be wealthy to, to worship money. If we're poor and we worship money, sometimes it takes the place of a, a, an unhealthy desperation, do anything for a quick buck. And the farther we go down that road, the more we will be shaped by the God that we worship. Perhaps it's fame that we worship or even just our own reputation that we wanna be a certain kind of person. And so we worship that particular image. Some of these things are actually masks for another worship that we actually worship ourselves. And those people, the people who go down that road will receive their reward, Jesus says. They will become what they pursue. If you pursue money and that's all you have, you may get that, but it's going to shape you. It's going to form you. But as the kingdom of God breaks through, those things will begin to be seen for the hollow objects that they are. They'll begin to be seen as empty. But when we worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we worship the God who took on human flesh and wrapped his arms around us, we're going to begin to take on the nature and the character of that God. It will form us and it will shape us. Now this gets tricky in our world because there's a lot of stuff that's done in the name of Jesus that has Christian tattooed on the side of it that has nothing to do and doesn't look at all like this kingdom of God looks a lot more like the other kingdoms of this world. That's where we have to be discerning and it's so difficult. And we might even say that many in our world today, even Christians don't even really know what the kingdom of God looks like. This passage challenges all the different lies about who God is. Sometimes we have a perspective of God that he's gloomy or penny-pinching or, or dominating or one who's out to make life difficult and salvation nearly impossible. That is not our God. Our God is the one who came into the world for our sake, who loves and embraces us and seeks to make our lives and the world right. This God's different than all the other deities that have ever been presented. He is unique. And I believe if we lived in a society where everybody really believed in this God and held on to this kingdom of God, there wouldn't be violence. There wouldn't be revenge. We wouldn't be divided by class or socioeconomics. Our material possessions would not be our priority. Our neighbor would be. What would happen if there was a community a church that chose to live fully like that. Wow. Life would be different. It would be astonishing. I think people would stare at us. And then there's a whole love your enemies thing that Jesus pulls out. For the Jewish people of the first century, this statement, love your enemies, would have pointed directly to the Roman authorities. Many wanted to overthrow the government. And actually they thought that was the point of a Messiah. Why would we hope for a Messiah if the Messiah is not gonna come in and conquer Rome for us so that we can once again kind of stand alone as the people of God. But this enemy love that Jesus speaks of, it, it doesn't mean feel loving emotions towards your enemy because that's not gonna happen very often. It means doing good, living in action love for our enemies. Followers of this new kingdom way are called to do good for our enemies, to use our actions to love others. 
But also this passage says, it's not just about our actions because we are called to bless and to pray. It's also about our words and what we speak to our enemies. Love is both action and it is speaking. That is loving our enemies. So think today about the best thing you could possibly do for the worst person. That's this enemy love that Jesus is talking about. Think about what you would really like for someone to do for you and do it for your enemy. Think about the people you're tempted to be really mean to and give them overwhelming generosity instead. That's how radical this kingdom of God is. So I guess it raises the question, can we really do this? And I think it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live this way. Jesus' intention here is not to give us a checklist. Loved enemies, check, right? Pray pray for people, my enemies, check. Turn the other cheek, check. It's an orientation, it's a posture, it's a way of pointing ourselves when we live in the kingdom of God. And the reason why we're called to this stuff is because this is what God is like. It's not just that he created arbitrary rules for us. This is his nature and his character. This is what he does. God is generous to a fault. God provides good things for everyone, even those who don't deserve it. God is incredibly merciful. And I think many of us, we know the darkest parts of our heart. We know those thoughts that we've had that seem so dark and so broken and so twisted. We know those things that we've done. And if you know those things and you know the darkness of your own heart and you know the overwhelming love of God, you can't help but know that God is merciful, deeply merciful. Now, this concept of doing to others what you would want them to do to you is not necessarily new. There was a rabbi in the first century named Hillel, and he said something really similar. But he said this, he said, do not do to others what you would not want them done to you. So he couched it in the negative. Jesus takes it a a step further, says not only is it about what you're not doing, it's about what you're doing. What is your life geared towards? What, What are you choosing to do? How are you choosing to love? It's about whatever good thing you would want being done for you to do to other people. And that's who we're called to be as the people of God. Jesus actually did this himself when he healed people and he forgave their sins and he restored people's humanity, that's who he is. When people struck him on the, on the cheek, uh, he turned it. When they ripped the coat and shirt off his back, he kept loving them. He showed love to his enemies and his friends. So these instructions that Jesus gives are really simple, really kind of simple things to do, but they're also really hard to find. Think for a minute as we talk about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies and all of these things. How many people do you know who really live like this? It's really hard to find. How many communities or societies do we know that actually live this way? That's even harder to find, isn't it? So why do we not live? If if it's so profoundly simple, why don't we live this way? Well, I think part of it is we don't like being told that we're playing the game the wrong way. We don't like being told that our rules are old or that our rules are not right or that we need to submit to the authority of something else. Um, I had the opportunity to go recently to a bachelor party. And at this party, there was, uh, they were playing cards. They were playing this card game. And I don't even remember which one it was or I don't remember the rules of it. But all I remember is every person in there 
had a passionate, like were, was passionate about this particular card game. They had all played it before and they loved it. And, um, and then each of them had their kind of specific way of playing it. And they kind of disagreed about how it was to be played. And so then the, the groom kind of stands up at the beginning of the game and says, I know you all play this a bunch of different ways, but you know, I'm the groom and this is my party. And so I want to play by my rules. So there's all these grumbling, you know, everybody, okay, okay, you know, well, I guess if you want to play it that way, I mean, it's not as fun if you play it that way, but it's fine. I mean, if that's really what you want to do. And, and, and so there was some conversation, but because of social convention and the pressures of social convention, they decided, okay, he is the groom. We can play by his rules. But as we played, every time that rule came into effect, you began to see all the eyes roll, right? And people grumbling and okay, because we don't like playing by a different set of rules, how much more so with our whole lives, everything that we do, our habits are hard to break. But when true justice and true love and true mercy show up on the scene, it always provokes opposition. There's always something that comes in conflict with it. Now we like talking about opposition when it comes to the world out there. And that's true. Like when we encounter other people and we live this true love and justice and mercy, there is gonna be opposition, but there's also opposition in here in our heart, because we resist the rule and authority of the kingdom of God. That's, we are broken and we resist that. I'll be honest with you, um, this idea of, of surrendering to the rule and authority of God is a sermon for me this morning. Um, church planting, we've learned a lot about church planting over the last several months. One of the things we've learned is that church planting is hard. It's challenging, it's difficult. I tell people, everybody asks me, how's it going? And I say, it's a roller coaster every day. There's some days that, oh, we're making great connections and people are joining our team and this is awesome. And I wish it was like a month stretch at a time. We'd have a good month, but it's daily. Every day is different. And then we have some days that are like, wow, this is hard. Is this, is this even working? You know, what are we doing? It goes up and down and it's a struggle. You know, when you show up in a, in a new town and especially in an area that's not a really, um, a kind of a, a de-churched area, um, you show up in town and people ask you what you do for a living. And I say, I'm a pastor. I say, well, where is your church? Say, well, we're starting a church. And they'll go, oh, so, so where is it? Where's your church? And I'll say, well, you know, we're starting a new church, so we're just forming. And they'll go, well, what kind of church are you? Some of you know when people ask you what kind of church sanctuary is. There's kind of this, uh, oh, well, it's a great church that we love, love people. We love the community. We're uh, contemporary, but we're also kind of liturgical too. And we do this and that. And they're looking for a brand name. <laughs> are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Are you this? Are you that? Imagine if you had to explain sanctuary, but you didn't really have any people yet, right? <laughs> That'd be even more challenging. People look at us like we're from Mars, okay? So, so that becomes a challenge. And I remember there was one particular day where we had felt like um, the past few days just had not been working out right. And, and things were, you know, we had great goodwill when we first got to the city and people are really receptive and it's been good. And we built a team and it's been awesome, but it seemed like things were just not quite working out right. And my tendency as we've started this church is when things don't seem to be going right, it's, well, I just need to work extra hard and put more and more effort into this. And if I just spin my wheels and keep working, then ultimately we'll build this church on my hard work, which is um, not something I've actually said, but I, I think that a lot. So I'm like, okay, I just spend all my time. I gotta be networking constantly, fundraising constantly, doing this and doing that. And so uh, we had one day where Ashley came to me and said, you know what, honey, um, my driver's license is expired and we've got to get it renewed. 
And I was like, okay. And I knew I had to take her and we had Lucy's. So we had to kind of wrestle Lucy. And so I said, okay, well, I, you know, I've got so much work. Can we put it off? And she said, well, if we don't get it done this week, then I'm gonna have to take the test again. And I really don't wanna do that. So we were like, okay. So we drove to the DMV and we waited two hours in line for the, you know, the DMV. And then she gets up to the counter and they have her take a vision test. She looks down at the, the characters and then she looks over at me and is like, I can't read the bottom line. I don't know what to do. And so they're like, well, we can't give you a driver's license. So we have to go find an optometrist. And this whole time I'm wasting so much time. I'm like, I should be working. I should be doing this and networking and all this kind of stuff. So we go and we find an optometrist. We wait another hour or two or whatever and get her fitted with glasses and all that stuff. And then the next day we have to go back to the DMV and wait in a two hour line. And so we go and I've now wasted two days of work and I could be working hard and planning this church and things are getting in the way. So I'm sitting there and I slowly begin to feel God's presence kind of just, do you trust me? Do you trust that this is me and not you? And, and I'm like, yeah, 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 you know? And, and sitting there and then all of a sudden I hear Preston and I look up and there was a couple that um, my, uh, my uncle in Topeka, Kansas had uh, referred us to. And he's a professional drummer who just moved to Nashville. And, and he, uh, um, he, he said, Preston, I, I reached out to this guy on Facebook and, and I, I tried to connect with them and they just never responded. So I thought, okay, they're just not interested. It, it's fine. I basically gave up on them. They probably got another church or another thing they're doing. He says, Preston, I've been meaning to talk to you for months said, I, I've been wanting to talk to you. My, you know, I'm getting ready to go play a gig on a cruise ship and my wife can't go with me and she's gonna be really lonely and we've wrestled over this decision and I'm struggling with it and I, I, I don't you know, know exactly what to do and I just need prayer and could you pray for my wife and could your wife even like call her sometime and just check on her and see how she's doing? We were able to process through that and talk about it and really able to be, not that I did anything, but a pastoral presence for this guy. And then there's a guy in front of him that looks back and says, are you going on that cruise? He says, yeah. And he says, I'm your bass player. <laughs> we're in the DMV. He says, I'm your bass player. He said, we're, we've never met each other, but we're gonna play this gig together. And then I began to talk to the bass player and he's talking to me about how they're, they're not really um, part of a community of faith, but they, they really believe that music has kind of a transcendent quality to them that points them to something deeper. And, and we had this great conversation. I drove home and we did eventually get a driver's license for her, but... I was driving home and, and I felt like God said to me, was that because of your hard work? <laughs> and I was like, oh, and it, it, it doesn't mean we don't work hard, but we work in participation with God, not to, to build something ourselves. And then I felt like he said, is this gonna be your church or my church? And I said, your church. <laughs> and, and the reality is that that not only when it comes to church planting with our lives, that it's gotta be about him and it's gotta be about his rules and his plan and his desires and not us and not the ways that we define ourselves. Because if I'm truthful to myself, some of the, the things that I was working so hard for were out of fear or out of a need to do something on my own or, or something like that. Now, what would happen if Jesus showed up on the playgrounds today? where we're living our lives in a bunch of different ways, living to try to be the people of God or live in our world and living out our stories? What about the places where we develop our schemes and our patterns, our beliefs, our ways of living in this world? What kind of team is he going to choose? Is he putting together? 
What sort of task is he looking to accomplish? What are the promises and warnings for our world? And what are some of the challenges for those of us who hear his call and choose to be his disciples? We have the opportunity this morning to participate in communion. And we do this every week, and this is one of the ways that we seek to be formed. It's one of the patterns of worship that we have where we seek to be formed more and more into the character and nature of God. We believe somehow, and we don't, there's all these different debates about how this happens, but somehow the presence of God is real here, that grace is present at the table for us. And as we receive it, it empowers us and it shapes us and it forms us. Let's all stand together. 1 Corinthians 11, and the servers can go ahead and come. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, this is the Apostle Paul, and he is uh, telling the story of Jesus breaking bread with his disciples. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the mystery of our faith together. Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Lord, we are so thankful that you entered our world. And as we're coming out of this season of Advent and we're in this season of Christmas, we're thankful that you came and changed the rules, that you weren't content with staying far away, but you came close to us. Lord, as we look at our world, we, we see there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of stuff that's not right, just as it was in the first century. Lord, we're thankful that you have introduced to us a new kingdom, a new way of living that is centered on who you are as a person. So today we come with all of the counterfeits we've pursued. For some of us, it's been false things for security and for love and for acceptance. We come with all of those things and we lay them down at your feet. We ask that you would change us, that you would heal us, that you would restore us. Lord, thank you as we come to the table that you wrap your arms around us and at the same time, you heal our broken places. We trust you, Lord, and we praise you. Now let's pray as the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Let's take in this meal of grace together. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.